Romans 8, starting in verse 28, a passage that we explored at the beginning of the pandemic. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many, many brothers. This is a passage that we've talked about at some length over the last few months as we've strived to understand what it means for God to be sovereign. But we probably need to add another word to our theological lexicons here. And if it's a word that you have never contemplated before, let me encourage you to write it down somewhere in the margins of your notes or Bible this morning, and that word is providence, the providence of God. When we talk about sovereignty, we talk about God's power, and we talk about God's intent, that God can do all things, and that God is involved as the creator with his creation. Providence has a slightly different definition and one that is more specifically defined here in Romans chapter 8. And for we know that for those who love God, all things work together. And they work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And, and for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If we're working on a definition of providence here at the beginning of the life of Joseph, it's probably something like this. It is God in providence that is providing, God providing the elect what they need to grow into Christ-likeness. That is God providing the elect what they need to grow into Christ-likeness. This is the definition that Paul gives us there in Romans chapter 8. It is God providing for our needs, not our perceived needs. Not our perceived need for health, or our perceived need for wealth, or our perceived need for attention, but for the need that is actual and foundational, that is known perpetually in the mind of God, that his people need to grow into Christ's likeness, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, like Joseph sought to be firstborn among many brothers. The problem is, when we study about people like Joseph, and as we reflect on our own lives, is that it's extraordinarily difficult to know where we are in the story. Uh, Ravi Zacharias tells a story that was common in ancient India of a man whose life had a series of ups and downs. So one day, the man finds a golden coin, and he takes it to the shop, and he buys a horse. And he's the first one in his village to own a horse. And his neighbor goes, Oh, farmer, what great fortune you have. You must be a really lucky man. For you found this golden crown and, and bought yourself a horse. Oh, this is great, great luck. And the farmer says, Well, I don't know about any of that. A couple of days later, the horse runs away. And the neighbor says, Oh, you have such terrible luck. How could you possibly? Well, I don't know much about any of that, the farmer says. A couple of weeks later, the horse shows up again, and it's uh, found its mate in a herd of wild horses and has brought all of them into the community. And now the farmer has dozens of horses. All the neighbors says, you have such great luck. A couple of weeks later, the man has a son, and the entire village is now singing about the luckiness of the farmer in the village. And the farmer says, well, I don't know about all of that. 
The son grows up and he strongly helps his father on the farm until one day he breaks his leg and the neighbor emerges again. Oh, what terrible luck you have. Your son has broken his leg. A week later, a gang walks into the village and they round up all the young, able-bodied men to join their gang and go off and fight and pillage and all the rest. But they leave the farmer's son with his broken leg alone. Oh, what great luck you have that your son has been spared from this horrible fate. Now, at any point in that farmer's life, as Ravi's story illustrates, it seems like it's up and down and up and down, but it's hard to tell until the very end whether or not the farmer has had good luck or bad luck. Of course, we don't believe in luck. We believe in providence. But this is part of the problem that we have. We're in the middle of the story. Horrible, egregious things are going to happen in our world and in our communities and in many of our lives. And it's impossible because of how limited we are, because of how finite we are, because we do not know the end of our stories to know exactly how all of this is going to pan out. Except we do know some things about the one who's writing our story. We do know some things about his character and we do know some things because they've been written down for us in Scripture about the way that he has actualized the story of other believers in the past. Those people who would have had the same questions, the, the same concerns, and the same calamities. People who have already been through it, who know what it's like to live full of uncertainty and to have God prove his character to them. And so while we may not know the various ups and downs that are going to come in our lives, we can see the ups and downs of those who were taken care of by God and provided for in Scripture. And so that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about one of those people, and his name is Joseph. And I don't know of anyone in the Old Testament canon who has a more dynamic story than Joseph. Talk about ups and downs. He puts the farmer to shame. If you were to ask Joseph at any single year of his life, does God love you? Is he taking care of you? Well, it would have been hard to receive, I think, what Joseph's assessment would have been. But we start in chapter 37 of Genesis, and in verse 1, and we learn some things about God's providence and how it plays out over the tablet of Joseph's life. We find first here, verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And, and these are the generations of Jacob. We learn already this is a story about Joseph. It's also really a story about Jacob. And it's also really a story about the nation of Israel. It's important to remember how fragile the nation is at this time. We think about Israel and we think about a nation that exists with national priorities and national global recognition that has millions and millions living in its populace, that has great grand cities and armies and navies and all the rest. But in Genesis chapter 37, the nation of Israel, this nation that was promised to come from Abraham's seed, this grandfather of Jacob, it, it's one family. It's one man with a dozen sons and their wives and some children who are coming. This is not a nation full of people. This is a tribe. And actually, as we read a couple of chapters earlier, a relatively small tribe. They're still wandering around. They have not settled in any one city. They don't feel safe enough to plant their roots for as small as they are. 
Joseph, it says in verse 2, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to their father. Now, now Israel loved Joseph. Israel is the other name for Jacob, the new name given to him by God. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made a robe of many colors and gave it to him. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all their brothers, they hated Joseph and could not even speak peaceably to him. Verse 5, now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, all of your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Are you uh, supposed to reign over us? Is, is that what this means? Or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Joseph, apparently not sensing the full breath of their hatred for him, decides to share another dream, starting in verse 9. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed to come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So here at the beginning of chapter 37, we're introduced to Joseph, Jacob's favorite son. In fact, that's what he's called in verse 3. Jacob is old, but he probably should have known better. He's 17 years old. Uh, consequently here, if you want to write this down somewhere in the margins, Genesis 47.25. 47.25. Joseph has lived for 17 years at home. This is the exact same span of time that Jacob will live with Joseph in Egypt. Having read through the passage, we see pretty quickly that there are three reasons why Joseph is not particularly liked by his brothers. First, he tattles on them. I love this in verse 2. He's 17 years old. He's pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with, and, and his father, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. It's an ancient Hebraism that we find here. He's pestering. He's grating. It's cringy. It's so tacky. Here he is. The brothers have done something, and he doesn't like it, and he's the youngest one, and he's going to go home and look like the virtuous one signaling here to his father. Ha, ha, ha. Hey, guys, guess what? I'm going to go tell dad exactly what you did. Now, I've never had a sibling, but some of you have in here, and you know that there is virtually no one on the planet who can push your buttons like your brothers and sisters. And I want you to think about, just for a moment, absolutely how grating that would be to have your sibling run off and say, I'm going to go tell Dad exactly what you did. Strike one. Strike two. He's given this beautiful, multicolored robe. Technicolor. Some might call it, right? Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, 
2 Samuel 13, verses 18 and 19. It's the only other time that we find this descriptor of a robe. We see the word robe used throughout the Old Testament, but it's this kind of beautiful, elegant robe. And uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, we discover that in the only other time this descriptor, uh, a colorful robe, a technicolor, multicolor, beautiful, highly adorned robe, it's used of, of the, the princess Tamar and, and her robe, the robe that she's wearing. Almost assuredly, Jacob is, is not just saying, oh, this is my favorite son. I've gone to the great lengths to acquire this very beautiful robe. Almost assuredly, Jacob is making a statement. And that statement has something to do with the royal intent of Joseph. Uh, this is his favorite son. And if anyone is going to carry on the legacy of Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob, it seems as though Jacob is scheming to make sure that it's Joseph. Now, he, he has older sons. It should go to the older sons. It should go to Reuben, who has all sorts of catastrophic calamities that he walks uh, headfirst into. It, it could be Levi, it could be Simeon, it could be Judah. Read chapter 38, you'll learn all sorts of crazy things about Judah. There is virtually no family that I've ever run across in the modern era of television that compares to the family of Jacob. Say what you will about all of the anti-heroes of television. Uh, but uh, Tony Soprano and Walter White and Don Draper have nothing on the family and sons of Jacob. In fact, it would make for great anti-hero television. It really would, except that most of it could never be broadcast over the airwaves. It's way, way too crazy. Uh, I would encourage you at some point to go back to the end of the saga of Jacob and his brother Esau and start reading about the sons of Jacob and all the various things that they got themselves into. If we had more time this morning, we would surely do that, but it's multiple chapters and, well, you can see how in Jacob's mind some of his sons may have disqualified themselves. Joseph is probably the one that he would choose. Now, we know that God has other plans, and we'll see that play out here, that even for all the really disastrous and salacious things that the sons of Jacob do, God knows exactly what he's about. Reuben might receive some redemption later down the line, and certainly Judah does, as we know that Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah, not the line of the tribe of Joseph. God has the ability to redeem even the horrible sons of Jacob. But you can understand how the father going to the very youngest of his sons, giving him the royal robe, essentially choosing him to be the leader of the tribe that will emerge from the name Israel. Well, you can see how the other sons would absolutely hate that. All of them passed over, all of them in their father's heart and mind, disqualified from being the leader that Israel deserved. Thirdly, thirdly, and here's the big one, Joseph has a dream, two, two dreams, in fact. Uh, and in both of them, Joseph is the one who is glorified, and the brothers are made subservient. Uh, we see this uh, not only with the binding of the sheaves, but also with the sun, moon, and stars bowing down before the... It's really hard to miss the point of what's happening here. Uh, now, an interesting exegetical fact, just store this away somewhere in your hearts and minds, uh, I, if I understand the Old Testament correctly, no Israelite ever needs an interpreter to interpret dreams. 
that it's only the foreigners and the pagans who need someone to interpret the dreams for them. Either way, it's really, really clear to Joseph's family exactly what's happening here. There will come a time when Joseph will be prominent in a new and unprecedented way in the history of their lineage. And all of his brothers, and even the sun and the moon, right, his father and his mother will be forced to bow down in feasance to him. Uh, Interesting here. The two terms that we find used over and over and over again in Genesis chapter 37, the first is brother. It's used 21 times. The author wants you to know. Moses is making it exceptionally clear here, the relationship. He's saying it over and over and over again. This isn't some distant figure who will lead the people. This isn't someone that you'll never meet like our president and senators. Most of us have never met them. This is someone in the family. This is a brother. And the brothers are against him. The brothers are scheming against their brother. 21 times in Genesis 37 alone. The other terms that are used repeatedly, hate and jealousy, four times throughout the chapter. They hate Joseph. Joseph, the tattletale. Joseph of the royal robe. Joseph who has been given dreams about his ascendancy. They hate Joseph. And as an aside, it probably reveals where they are spiritually. Do they hate Joseph for getting the dreams or do they hate the God who would give Joseph the dreams? It's hard to say at this point. But they hate him. Hate him. Well, now they start scheming. Uh, we hear the drumbeat beating louder and louder and louder. And now, starting in verse 12, we find this. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. This is like 50 miles away. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Uh, Come, I I will send you to them. And he said to him, Well, here I am. And so he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. And so he sent him to the valley of Hebron, and and he came to Shechem. Uh, Now, uh, he runs into a stranger here providentially. There are a number of small providential clues that happen to pop up. Uh, he happens to run into a stranger. Have you seen my brothers? Do you know that they're in Shechem? Oh, yes, and points them along the way. Verse 18. Well, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Their hatred has manifested this particular designation for Joseph. Here comes this dreamer. Come now and and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Uh, Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and and we will see what will become of his dreams. You may stop the dreams of Joseph, but you'll never stop the providence of God. They'll learn this pretty quickly. Now when Reuben heard this, Reuben is the oldest son. He's the one acting like a father for all of his younger brothers here up in Shechem. He rescued him out of their hands, saying, well, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. And so when Joseph came to his brothers, 
Well, they took off that royal robe. They stripped him down, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Uh, Now, the plot is deepening here. We've only gotten further and further into the hatred and the jealousy of the brothers of Joseph. Joseph is sent to go look on his brothers. He finds them. And then before they've even spoken a word, right, let's kill the dreamer. And, and for a second here, Reuben looks like the hero. Well, well, well let's not kill him. Uh, let's just, uh, what do we do now, guys? He's so indecisive. He's impotent throughout the entire narrative of his life. Poor Reuben, the oldest son, acting like a father, has no idea what to do. Let, let's just throw him into a pit. Now, these were cisterns. Uh, they would have dug down and stored water in these in lean times. There are thousands of these archaeologists have discovered across the ancient Israeli world, the, the land of Canaan. Some are as shallow as six feet. Most of them are 15 or 20 feet deep. But think through this for a moment with me about Reuben. We, we could go ahead and kill him, or we could throw him into a dry well that he could never possibly climb out of by himself. Which is more murderous, to club him over the head with a rock or to throw him down into a pit and let him die of starvation and dehydration? Reuben has no plan here. He's just nervous. Well, they take his robe. The scheme is in play at at any rate. And then in verse 25, they sat down to eat. This is the last time the brothers of Joseph will have a meal in proximity to Joseph until they dine with him years later in Egypt. And looking up providentially, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and uh, with them their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt and, and Judah. Now Judah is exerting himself as the leader here. Judah is, is taking over. Reuben is too quiet, too passive, too uncertain. Here's Judah stepping up here in ignominy. Said to his brother, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Now he doesn't mean that metaphorically. What do we have to gain ethically or ethereally by killing our brother. No, he means it literally. We can't get any money for that, but come, let's go ahead and sell him to the Ishmaelites and not let our hand be upon him, for he is our brother. Well, I love this. Uh, You can try to take your hand off of him, but God's hand is on him. And his brothers listen to him. He's our own flesh. We won't kill him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. (laughs) Uh, 20 shekels of silver isn't a particularly large amount of money in the ancient Near Eastern world. Judah isn't being virtuous. The brothers haven't relented of their hatred for Joseph. They just want a little pocket change as they travel back from Shechem. And it's convenient. But, but now they have a loose end. What are we going to do when we go home and find Dad? What do we tell him? What do we tell him about his favorite son? Well, verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph wasn't in the pit, he tore his clothes It's a mild reaction. And he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? 
looking out for himself, we think. And then they took Joseph's robe, and they slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. They don't even say this is Joseph's robe or our brother's robe. At the most conspicuous moment in the thing, they go, oh, oh, hey, Jacob, go ahead and tell us, is this your son's robe? You see the scheme here, right? It's covered in blood. Jacob will be left with no other thought than on the way to or from Shechem, something obviously tragic has happened to his beloved son. And now he has the only thing that remains is this robe of many colors drenched in crimson. They've not only plotted to kill their brother, they're now trying to deceive their father. And their father, the nimble deceiver himself, doesn't pick up on the ruse. This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And, and he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. And he fills in the blanks here. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and in a stronger reaction than we found from Reuben, he put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. It's not just mourning for the child that he's lost, though that's certainly a part of it. Some maybe in this room have lost a son or daughter. And you know that that is a piece of you that you will not get back on this side of eternity. It's also fear about what happens next. Imagine the pressure that falls on you, Jacob, as the son of Isaac to fulfill the promise that was made to your grandfather Abraham to be a people that would be so viable as to be able to bless the entirety of the earth. Jacob has chosen the next conduit of the blessing of God. And the son that he's chosen, he thinks, is now dead. Jacob's whole world is falling apart. And so at the very beginning of this, when we said this is a story of Jacob as much as it is a story of Joseph, this is exactly what we're discovering here at the end of chapter 37. Jacob can't see the end of his story. He only knows that in this exact moment he's living out a calamity, the likes of which his heart could never have conceived. It can't get any worse. He is so full of sorrow that for many, many days he mourns the son he thinks is dead. Now, in the great hypocrisy maybe uh, of this chapter and for many chapters verse 35 and all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him sure they did did Reuben really care about the heart of his father he didn't enough to withdraw his brother from the pit does Judah really care as maybe the last few of those silver shekels are clinking in his pockets? Does Jacob hear them when Judah comes to comfort him? He said, no, 
I can't be comforted. I go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him, Moses says. Now make no mistake, uh, what we sow is often what we reap. This should remind you of a story earlier in Jacob's life. Uh, Jacob, who is looking for a blessing that doesn't belong to him, goes to his father Isaac. Isaac is an old man at this point, and Isaac's sight is horrific. And so do you remember what Jacob does to deceive his father? Jacob uses the hair of a goat and Esau's clothes to deceive Isaac to get the blessing. And now Jacob's son will use the blood of a goat and the clothes of their brother Joseph to deceive Jacob. It's a malicious circle of deceit and jealousy and hatred and trying to bring to bear a future for the nation of Israel that is left to the purview of God the Father alone. Jacob could not actualize the blessings that would extend from Israel any more than any of his sons could. Only God can do that. Well, verse 36, we get another one of these clues of the providence of God. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. If the first part of the story of Genesis chapter 37 is how poor Joseph is so insufferable, and if the second part of Genesis chapter 37 is about how his brothers scheme to get rid of this insufferable one, then surely the third part of Genesis chapter 37 and the, the final analysis that emerges out of the early verses in the middle verses, and here verse 36, the last verse of Genesis 37, is how God is intervening. God is the one who gives Joseph dreams. God is the one who works out the coincidence of Joseph running into the unnamed man. God is the one who gets Joseph to his brothers at precisely the right moment. God has the Midianites to sell Joseph and to sell Joseph into Pharaoh's court. All of these details are exceptionally important as we move through the narrative of the life of Joseph because without every single one of these things happening, the next thing doesn't happen right in the sovereign scheme of God. When I was a kid, uh, we had boxes of dominoes, and, and I remember playing dominoes a handful of times, but more often what happened was um, we started setting the dominoes up in a line. M much more entertaining to me than actually playing them how you're supposed to play them. Uh, so getting on the counter and, and just lining them up, and they had to be just far away enough from each other, Right? so that you could tap the first one and it would fall and hit the second and third and all the way down the line. You pull any one of these moments, however tragic they appear, out of Genesis 37 through the end of the book, and we ruin the entire spectacle of what God is trying to achieve by his providence. Every good thing that happens to Joseph has to happen to Joseph 
to achieve God's plan to use Israel as a blessing. Every bad thing that happens to Joseph has to happen to Joseph to allow his life to be used to bring about God's providential plan to use Israel as a blessing on the earth. All the good, all the bad, and everything in between being used, being redeemed so that God might advance his plan to use Israel as a blessing and to bring us ultimately the Christ. This is what providence is. God providing what the elect need, not what they want, not what they think they need, but what they actually need to draw them deeper and deeper into Christ-likeness and ultimately for the glory of the Christ. Well, we learn a couple of things about God here. And if you've never been exposed to them before, embrace them now. Number one, you will not always know what God is doing. That seems simple enough, doesn't it? You will not always know what God is doing. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He is omnipotent. He actualizes the entirety of his will. He is aware of the beginning and the end and everything in between. He is infinite. But we are finite. He is all-knowing. And we are blessedly ignorant. You will not know all that God is doing. But we can know certain things with great confidence. We can know that God is consistent. We can know that his character never changes. We can know that he always fulfills his promises. We know that he is always working for our good in his will for his glory. In the middle of my story, when I can't see God watching and I'm not sure that God's present and I need to know if God is working, I can look to the stories of others that have proven to me his character. And this is what we're doing in the life of Joseph. This morning we sang a hymn and it's one of my favorite. It's very simple. Let me just repeat the words to you now as we think about what happens over the next few weeks. In the midst of corona, in the midst of all of our personal calamities, be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Uh, bear patiently the cross of grief or, or pain. Uh, leave to thy God to, to order and, and provide. In every change, he, faithful, will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best. Thy heavenly friend through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul. Thy God does undertake to guide the future just as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below.
this is the God that we serve. So many things we don't know. But all the things that he does. And even while we can't plot out the map of our lives, we can look to the lives of those who have come before us and see how God never left them, never abandoned them, and never wavered from his plan for them. He worked in his sovereign power to execute his providential will over their lives. And if he did it then, don't you think that he's still doing it now? Father, help us to remember every day the good ones and the bad ones that you are the same God to us that you were to Jacob and to Joseph that you never ever change and that you are equally as providentially active now as you were so many thousands of years ago in Jesus' name Amen